Amen. So one of the temptations um, that we can have as we read stories from the Old Testament is that it can very quickly become all about us, like very me-centered. And so then this story about God delivering his people, defeating Pharaoh's army, and parting the Red Sea becomes then a story about, well, who are the Pharaohs in your life? You know, is it a bully at school? Is it your boss? Is it our government? What Red Seas do you need God to part in front of you? What difficult circumstances are you facing? Just trust that God will deliver you the way that he delivered the Israelites. And there may, may very well be a lot of truth in that, um, but what happens is that me and my life and what I'm going through, the things turning out the way that I hope that they will become the primary center of the story. And what scripture makes clear is that in as much as God cares for us deeply and the very real struggles that we face, that ultimately the starting point in the story, the story with a capital S, is God and not us. And what God is like, what God is doing. And here's where we come in, how God calls his people to respond to him in light of that. And so for our Exodus story, I want to just point out um, just three simple things that we can draw out from this passage when it comes to God and God's story. So the first thing is that in this story, Egypt represents the forces of evil that enslave and exploit human beings made in the image of God under the yoke of this oppression. So there's very real evil in the world that is represented here. And, you know, to believe that there is evil in the world, like you don't even have to believe in God to see that this is true. So Dr. King once wrote that there's hardly anything more obvious than the fact that evil is present in the universe. It projects its nagging prehensile, and I had to look up what that word means, it means grasping, it's nagging, grasping tentacles into every level of human existence. We may debate over the origin of evil, but only the person victimized with a superficial optimism will debate over its reality. Evil is with us as a stark, grim, and colossal reality. But we also see in this story that that's not the only reality, that there is also good in the world. And the history of life from the very beginning, you know, in every world religion holds this tension at its core, this conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness, between the forces of life and the forces of death. And we feel that tension, not only in our external world, like we see all over the news, but also in our internal world, where we feel the effects of, of sin and brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And so in the midst of this very cosmic and very personal struggle, what we see in the story is, is a second thing that's true, that God by his very nature is a rescuer, a deliverer. So in verse 11, you know, the people are exhibiting this pattern of just like blaming and complaining and faithlessness, despite all that they've experienced to this point. And so they say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
and just how quickly it is that we go to that place, right? Like God doesn't care about me. God has abandoned me. And we're going to die, whatever it is that, that death might represent for you. And so in verse 13, Moses says, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to keep still. You might remember, this is like years ago, um, there was a man named Wesley Autry, and he saved the life of someone who had fallen unconscious onto the subway tracks here in New York. And there was this oncoming train that was really quickly approaching. And what Wesley did is he threw himself on top of the person's body in the tracks and held him down as the pain, as the, the train passed over them. You might remember this happening. And in the aftermath of that story, uh, the New York Times uh, asked people, would you jump onto the subway tracks in order to save a stranger? And nearly every single person said, I'd like to think that I would, but I don't know that I would have. But what if that person on the tracks was someone that you loved? Like your child, your parent, your sibling, your friend, your spouse. I imagine that even the most fearful person among us would spring into action without much thought. There's just an instinct to rescue those we love. And how much more is that true of God, who is the God, the author of love? In Exodus 2, it says that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So his actions flowed out of this covenant commitment of love for the people that he had embraced and birthed and called out to himself. And so he says to Moses, I've seen their misery. I've heard their cries. I know their sufferings. And so I have come down to rescue them. And that's the progression that we see in scripture again and again and again, that God comes to the rescue of the people, these unfaithful, rebellious people with whom he has made that promise of covenantal love. Which leads me to the third thing that I want to draw out from this passage. And this is perhaps the most important point in this story. That when we talk about Exodus, you know, we're referring to this series of events that happens here. You know, the series of events which culminates in the parting of the Red Sea. And the Exodus in the Old Testament was like the decisive mighty act of God's salvation. And it's just referred to again and again in the Psalms and in the prophets, like all throughout Israel's history. But it is not the decisive mighty act of God's salvation. And that act we know from this side of history was what God did in Christ on the cross. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the fulfillment that everything, every story in the Old Testament was pointing towards. The ultimate exodus happened when Jesus died on the cross for us, for all humanity, for all time, where God decisively triumphed over his enemies so that 
evil and death would not and does not have the final word. So in Colossians 1, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2.13 says that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The significance of our Exodus story to us this morning is not that God will deliver you out of every bad situation and make everything okay and that you just need to trust him, but rather that God's deliverance has already come to us in Christ. And because of that, that's what gives us faith and courage to face every bad situation, even death itself instead of with fear and despair. Jesus, it says in the New Testament, is the new Moses who leads us through the waters of baptism, buried with him in his death, risen with him in his resurrection power. And if you remember, even in our baptismal liturgy, it talks about the gift of water and how through through this water, God led his people you know, into freedom through the death and resurrection of Jesus from bondage of sin into eternal life. And in baptism, you, know, you see there's that image of, of descending into the waters and that's where we die. That is where we were born. That's where we receive that new life in Christ that moves us from slavery into freedom. So we're going to say um, the Apostles' Creed in just a minute. And there's a line in there that says that he descended to the dead. There's that imagery again of descending into death. And originally in the Apostles' Creed, it said that he descended into hell. But it made uh, a lot of people uncomfortable. And so at some point, they switched it and they changed the language, at least in the Book of Common Prayer, to the dead. And that line that he descended to hell comes from a number of these odd verses in the New Testament that talk about how when Jesus died, that he descended into Hades, you know, the realm of the dead. And sometimes that's where it's traded, translated hell as well. And it says that he preached to the spirits who were imprisoned there and freed them, rescued them. And in the gospel, it talks about how when Jesus died on the cross, that the earth trembled and that the tombs were broken open. There's this early church father, John Chrysostom, who in the third century wrote, God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent as for a lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. He has gone to free from sorrows the captives, Adam and Eve. He took them by the hand and raised them up saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. If Jesus descended into hell itself to rescue us, where can you not find him? In the middle of a pandemic, on the subway, in the schools, in the loneliness of our bedrooms at night, in our addiction 
and our anxiety and our depression. The struggle is real. It's very real, you know, in our world and in our lives. But the story reminds us that our God is a rescuer and he has rescued us in this ultimate exodus from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, who leads us through the deep waters of baptism. And, you know, he doesn't push us in there. You know, he invites us to follow him. He gives us that choice. He beckons us to follow after him so that as he frees us from that captivity, that we can then extend our hands to others who are in captivity and, and give to them and offer to them the freedom that comes from life in him. And so, you know, I want to give us a chance as we pray together um, just to respond to this, you know, and maybe you um, have never um, said yes um, to this rescuer, this deliverer that is Jesus, the new, new Moses. You know, maybe in some ways you have, in the midst of all that's going on, that you've kind of lost sight of the presence with Jesus and what may be your own personal hell or the hell that you see in our world. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to say yes to this Jesus again. Yes to this new Moses who beckons us to follow him into the waters of baptism again. Like we're only baptized once in our, in our, in our journey of faith. And yet oftentimes we need to renew um, that, those vows of baptism, to remember again, to allow ourselves to be washed and cleansed and freed and set free once again from our bondage to fear. And so I invite you, would you bow your heads with me and just join me right now in prayer. God, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks and praise that you are the great deliverer, the great rescuer, that you cannot help yourself but come and deliver your people. And God, we come before you now, God, because we feel just the bondage and the oppression of many things in our world. We see it in our society. We see it in our own lives. God, we feel it in the depths of our bones. God, we feel that bondage. And yet, God, we know that we live not as captives, but as free sons and daughters of the living God. And so, Lord, we come to you, Lord, and we put our faith and our trust and our hope in you. And Lord, we hear you saying um, not only to, to be still and to receive the salvation that you have to give, but you also say, move, get up and walk into your salvation. And so this morning, that's what we want to do. God, we want to move. We want to follow you. We want to look to the future, God, with faith and not fear, with courage and not despair. And I pray, God, for every one of my brothers and sisters listening to my voice right now, that even now would you set them free, God, from any bondages they may feel, they may feel right now. And would you bring your peace and your freedom that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and our minds as we step into the fall this day. We commit ourselves to you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.